see you all and to have this opportunity to open up God's word with you. I am going to go ahead and pray for us again one more time briefly, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we know that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also know that by the Spirit of Christ, you've inspired the authors of Scripture to store up for us treasures both old and new, that we might be taught from your word week in and week out. We pray that you would grant the Spirit to give us eyes to behold by faith your sovereign power to bring good from evil, and the greatest expression of that in the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, who brings redemption, salvation, and forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter one. I don't know what page that's on in the Bibles we provided, but I trust you can find it quickly. We're going back to the beginning today as we wrap up our series in Genesis. So over the last 56 sermons, We've looked up close at the book, considering on average just about a chapter at a time. But today, we're going to zoom out and look at the book as a whole to try to understand what the central purpose and point of the entire book of Genesis is. It's my normal practice to read the text that we're going to be considering. So I'm going to read Genesis 1 to 50 now. It should take about four hours. And then we... No. No. Kidding, I'm not going to read the whole thing for us today, but I would encourage you to try to read it in one sitting someday, or two sittings over the course of two days. It is a magnificent book. Uh, I love Washington, D.C. I don't want to live there, but I do love it. I love exploring and getting to know different parts of the city. Uh, Each time I'm there and visit a distinct part of the city and walk its streets in person, I learn something new about the city. Uh, Whether it's Capitol Hill, where Leah and I lived for a few years, or Foggy Bottom, or DuPont Circle, or Brooklyn, or Georgetown, or name any other neighborhood in D.C., you're always sure to learn something new about the city when you visit. But it doesn't matter what part of D.C. I am in, for the life of me, I couldn't tell you where I am in the city in relation to everything else that's in the city, apart from the general neighborhood I may be in. I couldn't tell you what major streets are to the north or to the south. I couldn't tell you, based on where I'm standing, what direction the Capitol building is in, unless I could see it, or where the White House is, or where the National Mall is. I don't have the gift of seeing the city as a whole in my mind. I get lost in the particulars. That's why I love taking off and landing at Reagan Airport, especially if it's during the day. Matter of fact, only if it's during the day. When you do that, if you're landing at Reagan or taking off from Reagan, you get to see the whole city in all of its splendor. And it really is an awesome city to look at from above and to see how it's laid out. You can see how the various parts fit together. Oh, that's where Capitol Hill is in relation to Georgetown and how you might get to there. And little by little, landing at Reagan and taking off from Reagan has helped me to better understand where I am in the city 
when I'm in the city on the ground. Today, we're not going to be on the ground in Genesis. We're going to be flying over it. We're going to be looking at the book as a whole, seeing how the distinct parts are laid out, which I hope will in some small way help you to better understand the particulars of Genesis the next time you're in it. So today's sermon will be unique. It's going to be uh, on one part, in one part, a lot like a Sunday school class. And then in the second part, more like a sermon that you're used to. We're going to start off with what I'll call Sunday school class material. I'm going to touch on the author, the original audience of the book, who, that, who those people were. Then we'll look at the structure of the book. And then we'll consider the purpose and the main point of the book before turning to the sermon portion of our time And we're going to try to do that all in maybe slightly longer than a normal sermon would be. So we have a whole lot to get through and not a lot of time, which means we're not going to be able to touch on everything that's going on in Genesis. But I think that you're going to be able to walk away from this time with a better understanding of the book as a whole. And I think you're going to be able to walk away saying, wow, that is if I do my job, wow, God's plan of redemption really is glorious. And it's all here in Genesis, even from the beginning. So let's go ahead and get right to it, and we want to start by considering the author and the original audience of the book of Genesis. I'm going I'm to hand this over to you kids, doesn't matter what age you are, as long as you can understand me, five up to teens. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Just raise your hand. Who's the author of the book of Genesis? We'll go right over here. Adam? Oh, Simon, excuse me. Moses, that's right. Hey, lesson here for the adults, you'll, hit, you'll find really smart people today. I'm going to put smart in air quotes really smart theological people say, oh no, it wasn't Moses, it can't possibly be Moses. There were actually four authors, we call them the Yahwist, the Elohist, the, uh, the priest, and the Deuteronomist, and the, it's these four individuals, we have no idea who they were, but it's clear that they got together and put this book of Genesis together. Jesus says, Moses wrote Genesis. You know who's right? Jesus is. Moses wrote Genesis. Now kids, another question for you, who is the original audience of Genesis. Are we the original audience? Is, are we the people who it was written to? Abram. The Israelites, the Israelites when, Abram? I'll just throw another question out to you. Where, at what period in their history? Were they like Abraham's sons or later? During the Exodus, that's exactly, let's give Abram a little round of applause. Good job, Abram. <laughs> Moses wrote Genesis to the nation of Israel at some point after the exodus out of Egypt and before they came into the promised land. Now let's talk briefly about the structure of the book. Here's where things start to get a little bit more interesting. Considering the structure of a book might seem like an odd thing to do, but it is really important because understanding the big picture breakdown of a book can help us understand what was important to the author and therefore, what is important for us. And if we were flying over the book of Genesis, we would see that it is made up of two distinct neighborhoods, two distinct sections, one smaller and one much larger. The first major section, if you're taking notes, you can just write whatever you find interesting down. The first major section of Genesis is chapters 1 to 11. Those are one unit. 
And the big heading for chapters 1 to, le- 1 to 11 is God's relationship to mankind. God's relationship to mankind. And the second major section is chapters 12 to 50. Much bigger section. And the big heading there is God's relationship to his chosen people. I want to double click on those real quick. In chapters 1 to 11, we cover some 2,000 years. And there are two cycles of similar events. There are two cycles of creation, fall, spread of mankind and sin, and worldwide judgment. So the first cycle is in chapters 1 to 8. God creates, that's creation, chapters 1 and 2. Mankind falls into sin, that's chapter 3. Mankind spreads on the earth, and so does sin. That's chapters four and five, culminating in the worldwide judgment of the flood. That's chapters six to eight. Now, quickly, turn with me in your Bibles. When I ask you to turn, I'm gonna try to get you to do it as quickly as possible to Genesis eight, verses 15 to 17. Turn there quickly with me. This is after the flood. The flood has ended and the waters have subsided on the earth. Genesis 8, verses 15 to 17. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. When was the last time God told an individual to be fruitful and multiply? Just shout it out. Adam. That's exactly right. told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Now you have Noah, a man and his wife, walking off of a boat, followed by all the animals that God created onto an earth that had just been cleansed, redone. This is a new creation account. So you have another cycle of creation beginning followed by Noah's sin. He gets drunk in a garden. He plants a vineyard and gets drunk off the wine. Then you have the spread of mankind again. Noah's descendants spread on the earth, so does sin, culminating in the worldwide judgment of Babel, where God confuses the language and disperses the people on the earth. That's the first major section of Genesis, God's relationship to mankind. The second major section is God's relationship to his chosen people in chapters 12 to 50. This section is much bigger, longer, and much more important, frankly, for our lives today. And we know this because time slows way down. We considered 2,000 years in 11 chapters, and now over the next 38 chapters, we will barely get through 200 years. We'll see that in chapters 12 to 50. Chapters 12 to 25 mainly follow Abraham. Chapters 26 and 27 mainly follow his son Isaac. Chapters 28 to 36 mainly follow Isaac's son Jacob. And chapters 37 to 50 mainly follow Jacob's son Joseph. And through each of those individuals, we trace how God is fulfilling his promise to bless mankind through Abraham and his descendants. Big picture breakdown of Genesis. Chapters 1 to 11, chapters 12 to 50. God's relationship to mankind, God's relationship to his 
chosen people. Now the questions get a little bit harder. Kids and teens, another question for you. Can any of you tell me why Moses wrote Genesis? What's the purpose of Genesis? What, what effect did Moses want this book to have on them? Think of them, they're coming out of Egypt after the Exodus. God delivers Genesis to Moses. Moses writes it. Cooper, what would you say? God keeps his promises. Yes and amen. That is definitely one of the things that God is teaching his people. That is exactly right. There's another thing that he's teaching them. Boom! You guys have killed it! God is the Lord and creator of all things, and God keeps his promises. Think about how important that would have been for the nation of Israel. They had just been living in Egypt for 400 years in a nation that had many gods. Sun gods, moon gods, fertility gods, food gods, water gods, and they would have heard accounts of how those gods battled it out in creating the universe and how they continued to rule everything. So you can't think, you go back to the ancient Near East, creation stories weren't non-existent. There were creation stories. And the Egyptian gods would have been involved in these creation stories. But Yahweh wants his people to know, no, those gods are not gods. I am the one true God who made heaven and earth. I am the one true God who called Abraham out of Ur and who has been sovereignly working in spite of the continuing curse on creation and in spite of the sins of my people to bring about the fulfillment of my plan of redemption. The purpose of the book of Genesis was to teach the people of Israel and us today that Yahweh, the one true God who created all things and who called the patriarchs and kept all of his promises to them was their God. That was why he wrote Genesis to the people of Israel. But that is not the main point of Genesis. The main point of Genesis is similar, but slightly different. To see the main point of Genesis, I want us to look quickly at the beginning of the book and then at the end. I want you to turn to Genesis 1 again. I'm just going to scan over something real quick. Often when you look at the beginning and end of a book, you find similar themes, and those themes can often tell you what the main purpose of the book is. So in Genesis 1, there are a number of words and phrases that are repeated over and over. I want to open this up to all of you, adults included. What words or phrases do you see repeated in Genesis 1? Terry. Let there be. That's repeated over and over again. God speaks, let there be. What's an, another one? Bridget. Then God said. He spoke. Yep. What, basically, once, the per, once, the, once a person calls out the thing that I'm looking for, we're going to stop and keep moving. So we'll keep going. Abram. Boom. Abram, you did it again. You hit the key that I was looking for. There's lots of stuff that's repeated. All of it is important. But as far as the point of Genesis God said that it was good. God saw that it was good. Seven times, we don't get a whole lot into numerology here at CBC, but seven is a pretty significant number in scripture. Usually means perfection or completion. We learn that God's creation was good, perfectly good. Chapter two, it's still perfectly good as Adam names all the creatures and then God gives to him a wife. But then chapter three, God's good creation becomes 
evil. Through Satan's temptation and Adam and Eve's sin, God's good creation is corrupted by sin and death. So at the beginning of the book, good turns to evil through the sin of man. Now turn to Genesis 50. See how fast you can get there. How many of you grabbed and turned, ended up in the book of Exodus? Some of you did. I just did. You grabbed too much and then you ended up in Exodus. You're like, oh, I went too far. All right, so now we're in Genesis 50. Joseph's brothers come to him for forgiveness. And look at what he says in verse 19 and following. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Stop right there. Stop right there and appreciate the connection to Genesis 3 and how Joseph is contrasted with Adam. Adam took God's place when he ate the fruit that he was forbidden from eating. Here, Joseph refuses to take God's place. He's like a new Adam. Now notice what he says next. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. At the beginning of the book, good turns to evil through mankind's sin, and at the end of the book, evil is turned to good through God's sovereign power. That is most fundamentally the main point of Genesis. Genesis is most fundamentally about God sovereignly working in the face of mankind's evil to fulfill all of his good purposes for his people. And the fulfillment of those good purposes is directly tied to God's promise in Genesis 3, verse 15, where he promised to send an offspring of the woman to crush the serpent's head, yet who will be wounded as he does it? This verse is widely known as the Proto-Evangelion. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. Proto-Evangelium, first gospel, because it is the first promise of redemption in the Bible. I just think sometimes it's worth, as Christians, considering and meditating on how, how committed God is to our good and to redeeming us. Christians can sometimes wrongly adopt a view of God that is, God is out for me. God isn't kind. He's more like me than, 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 than he is different from me. But after the very first sin, before he pronounces any punishment that's gonna come on them, he promises redemption. Redemption for you and for all who believe in my promises. God is committed to your good. God is committed to redeeming you from the curse of sin. The first thing out of his mouth, redemption. I'm crushing him, good. Redemption for you. But things will get hard because of what you've done. God is so committed to our good. No sooner does mankind sin than God declares that he will redeem us from sin. And this promise is the means by which God will sovereignly use what is evil to bring about the ultimate good for his people and for all creation. Throughout the remainder of the book and the Bible itself, we trace how God sovereignly works in the face of evil to fulfill that promise. 
So my message today, we got into the sermon portion of today's time. My message today is entitled, The Gospel According to Genesis. Genesis is unique among the books of the Bible in that every aspect of the grand story of redemption from creation to consummation either appears or is foreshadowed in some way in this majestic book. If all of scripture, if you, if you think about Genesis to Revelation, if you think about this book right here, if you think about, think about it as a glorious tree, when you get to the end of Revelation, you're like, wow, that's a, that's a majestic redwood. Genesis is the seed. All the component parts are present in the seed. And now they're gonna burst forth and blossom out. And, and, they, and they already do in the book of Genesis. And since my message is entitled The Gospel According to Genesis, the outline of my message will follow what I understand the most important aspects of the gospel to be. And I'm just gonna show how they're all here in Genesis. And then we'll consider how Genesis is fulfilled in Jesus and some lessons we can draw. How on earth are we gonna do that in the next 30 minutes? We'll figure it out. All right, let's get right to it. The gospel according to Genesis. If you're taking notes, here's point one. God creates. The good news of Christianity and the good news of Genesis begins not with us, but with God. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All that exists in the deepest reaches of the universe, in the furthest corners of the seemingly infinite expanse, all that our eyes behold, whether with our eyes or through the eyes of like Hubble telescope, right? And all that our senses perceive was created by God. There was once nothing, and then there was something. And the reason that something, which is everything, came into existence is because God spoke. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be an expanse, and it was so. Let there be dry land, and it was so. Over and over again, we read that God spoke all things into existence. If you lived in the ancient world, this was reality-shattering news. You had been taught that the universe was a result of warring gods, good gods and evil gods, digging it out for supremacy, but Genesis comes along and shatters that myth and declares unequivocally that all that exists is the result of the one true God speaking and creating. If you live in the modern world as we do, this is reality-shattering news. See, you and I have been taught that the universe simply exploded into being because that's, that happens for no reason at all. And somehow, by blind purpose and chance, it arranged itself into a supremely ordered and beautiful state. And that single-cell organism somehow evolved from protoplasmic soup into humans and animals who can reflect on themselves and the world around them. Animals can't. Humans can, right? And then Genesis comes along and shatters that myth and declares unequivocally, that we and the universe are not the product of an uncaused explosion, but of a personal God speaking and bringing all things into existence. 
stop right there. If you're at home and you hear a knock at your door, what do you do? Well, now you may check your Ring app or whatever it is to see who it is. But in old days, before apps existed, you stood up and you went to the door. Why? Because knocks on doors don't happen unless someone is standing there. Effects have causes. The universe, friends, is an effect that has a cause which is equal to or greater than the effect itself. Now you look at the universe and you tell me how powerful God is. He speaks and brings it all into existence. And the crown jewel of his creation was mankind. Look at Genesis 1. Go back there. Genesis 1, verse 26. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. We don't decide our own identity. It is given by God, and thus it is good, whether we are male or female. That's part of our application. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Now look at verse 28. God blessed them and commands them to multiply and exercise dominion. The universe is God's temple. It displays his glory and power. The earth, the place where God lived with man, and God gave man the privilege of reflecting God's glory and power by ruling over the earth alongside of him. Look at chapter one, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, It was very good. Creation was perfect. Mankind was perfect. Everything was very good. But things are not very good today. What happened? Point two, man sins. After creating all things perfectly good, God placed the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, in a garden. And in that garden, he provided them with abundant blessings. He told them that they could eat from all the trees in the garden, think golden corral, but perfect. The perfect buffet. You can eat whatever I want. I can eat any of them and the food is perfect. There's no hydrogenated oils in it. It's just good for my body. I'm gonna eat it all day. He abundantly provided for them, but told them there was one tree, one part of that buffet. Don't go there. Right, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they could not eat from. If they eat, ate from that tree, they would surely die. No sooner did they receive that command than they break that command. An evil creature finds his way into the garden and tempts him. He tells the woman that God just wants to keep them from becoming like them, like him, and that if they eat the fruit, they'll become wise like God himself. And the man and woman, sadly, believe the lie. No. They eat the fruit. They break the one command God gave them. Suddenly, they're filled with shame and guilt, fear. They make clothes for themselves to cover their shame, and they they hide from God. We all find ways to do that in our own life, to to cover the shame and guilt we feel. feel. Lots of people talk today about finding ways to relieve things like shame and guilt. And sometimes shame and guilt that we feel inexplicably. Researchers have looked for ways to create pills that remove the feeling of guilt. But friends, guilt and shame are part of the human condition. It is just part of life that follows this first sin. And, And we often feel it because of sins we've committed. Those feelings that we feel serve a good purpose. They tell us that something's not right. 
between us and God. They're meant to drive us to God. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We see in the rest of the book and the rest of the Bible the devastating effects of sin passed down to all humanity. Just as God promised that if they ate of the fruit, they would die, we learned that even though they lived really long lives, Adam and Eve died. All their descendants died. And mankind still dies today. But it's not just death that is passed down to all mankind. It's a heart that's actively inclined to evil. Think of what we learn in Genesis. One of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain, kills his brother. One of Cain's descendants, Lamech, brags about being more murderous than Cain. Eventually, God looks down on the whole world and sees that it's just wickedness everywhere, all day, prior to the flood. Even after the flood, sin remains. Noah sins. His son Ham sins. The whole world sins at Babel by building a temple to their own greatness rather than worshiping God. And after the judgment at Babel, sin continues to spread. God hears the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. Think Genesis 18. Abraham throws his wife under the bus in Egypt. Sarah takes matters into her own hand to secure a child. Jacob lies to his father and cheats his brother. Jacob's sons sell their own brother into slavery. The story of Genesis is in part the story of the spread of sin to all mankind, and that horrific spiritual disease is still with us today, not only infecting our world with violence and anger and hatred, but infecting our very own hearts. We have all sinned too. We're no different from them, even though they lived a long time ago. And like the first people lived a thousand years. Like that's crazy. Something was different about their body than ours, but not their hearts. They sinned, we've sinned. That brings us to point three, what we learn in Genesis. God judges sinners. God is holy. He is pure, he is perfectly righteous. And because of that, we learn in Genesis that he lets no sin go unpunished. Genesis shows us with perfect clarity this fact. His judgment begins with Adam and Eve. Because of their sin, the land will no longer give its abundance. Adam will be, Adam's work will be cursed with hardship. Eve's experience of childbearing is cursed with pain. On top of that, they're exiled from God's presence in the garden. No longer will they enjoy his presence. On top of that, they will one day die. And God's judgments continue. God responds to Cain, who is already exiled from the garden because of his parents' sin and makes Cain a wanderer on the earth after his murder of Abel. Then after the, seeing the way that sin fills the earth, God sends a cataclysmic judgment in the flood in which all living creatures, man and animal alike, die. The sin of Babel is met with the judgment of confusion, division, and dispersion across the face of the planet. Sodom and Gomorrah are later consumed by fire. In Genesis, we find over and over again God's commitment to bringing justice to those who do evil. You even think about later in the book, just a very small passage, two verses even, Judah's sons, Ur and Onan. We don't know what they did. We just learned they were wicked and God put them to death. God judges sinners. And we need to be warned by these displays of perfect and just judgment because those displays of judgment in Genesis, especially the flood, point forward to a greater judgment to come. Jesus himself 
taught that there is a judgment coming that will be just like the days of Noah. People will be going about their business, doing what they always do, and suddenly, without warning, judgment will come. He will appear to bring perfect judgment on all who've sinned. The earth, Peter says, will not be consumed by water this time, but by fire. Each of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will stand trial for all the sins we've committed and because we've all sinned, we will all be found guilty and we will suffer eternal judgment for the sins we've committed. Our only hope is that God would show us mercy and praise God, he has. All of that is the bad news. I thought the gospel meant good news. Where's the good news? It was only good news because of the bad news that precedes it. The bad news that makes the good news of Christianity is so good, and it is that God also shows mercy to sinners. That's point four. God teaches us that God judges, uh, Genesis teaches us that God judges sinners, but it also definitively displays that God shows mercy to sinners. Before God ever pronounces a word of judgment over Adam and Eve, we already pointed this out, what does he say to them? I will make this right. Promises to send a seed of the child from the woman who will crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin. I will have mercy, God declares. Yes, Adam and Eve will be exiled from his presence. Yes, they will toil and suffer pain and heartache. They have sinned after all. But pain and heartache, guilt and shame are not the final word. Mercy is. And we see God's mercy on display throughout Genesis. Adam and Eve don't die right away. That's mercy in and of itself. More than that, I want you to look at chapter three, verse 21. After they sinned, they tried to cover their shame with clothes made of fig leaves. They made their own garments, but only God can cover our shame. He removes their fig leaves and close them, close them with garments made from animal skins. Something died so that their shame could be covered. Even at the very beginning, we see this happening. Later on, God has mercy on Noah and his family and preserves them from judgment, though they are sinners, by keeping them safe in the ark through the flood. Later, God has mercy on foolish Lot, twice, <laughs> he sends Abraham to rescue Lot after he's kidnapped, and then later on, after Lot's like, I'm just gonna go back to the city that I got kidnapped from, and God forcibly removes Lot from Sodom before the city is judged with fire. Later, God shows mercy by calling Abraham and delivering him from being an idol worshiper and gives Abraham a place of prominence in his great plan of redemption. Later, God has mercy on Isaac, by providing a lamb in Isaac's place so that Isaac would live and not die. God has mercy on Hagar. He shows common grace to Ishmael. God has mercy on Abimelech, warning him in a dream not to touch Rebekah. God then has mercy on Laban, warning him in a dream not to touch Jacob. God has mercy on Joseph, preserving him through all of his trials, and mercy on Joseph's Brothers, allowing them to be reconciled to Joseph and mercy on the world by saving the world in the midst of a famine through Joseph. Over and over in Genesis, we read of God's astounding mercy to sinners. God 
rightfully judges the guilty, but also amazingly shows mercy to sinners. Which brings us to point five. God's people receive mercy through faith in God's promises. The necessity of faith. The necessity of mankind to believe in order to receive mercy is not an invention of the New Testament. The authors of the New Testament go to great pains to show how from the very beginning, from Genesis even, God shows mercy to those who believe in his promises of salvation. We see this plainly in the account of the flood. The reason that Noah was saved through the flood was because he believed God's warning of judgment and his promise of salvation in the ark. Which you might say, John, Genesis says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Yes, it does. It also says Noah was a sinner who got drunk off his own wine, right? Noah was called righteous, not because he was perfect, but because his posture towards God was one of belief, of faith. Nobody makes this more clear than Abraham. Turn to Genesis 15 with me. God had already called Abraham out of Ur and already given him glorious promises to redeem the world through him. And in Genesis 15, God is reiterating to Abraham that even though he is presently old and childless, and his wife is barren, yet he will have more descendants than the stars in heaven. That's a crazy promise. Look at verse six. And he believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, that is Abraham, as righteousness. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. It's one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. It's one of the most often Old Testament verses cited in the New Testament, used over and over again by the authors of the New Testament to prove that salvation from sin, mercy from God, is to be received by faith. What do I have to do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No, but there's got to be something more that just seems too easy. That is God's way in the world. Not you, but him. Believe in what he has done to secure your salvation. The path to receiving mercy from God is through faith. Friends, that is amazing news. If you are here today, you don't understand yourself to be a believer in Jesus Christ, and you want to know how you can find forgiveness from God mercy and forgiveness for all of the sins that you've committed, I have good news from you. Just believe. Look at Jesus Christ and say, yes, Savior and Lord. The Bible also says that that belief includes repentance, but repentance is an overflow of that faith. It's not to earn the, to, to earn the forgiveness. We believe, and now we turn and walk with God. We live lives that are distinct. We're gonna talk about that more. But from the very beginning, friends, Mercy is received by faith from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Scripture. Thousands of years have passed. God's plans haven't changed. They're all the same. It is by faith. Some might ask, though, if the New Testament teaches that people are saved through believing in Jesus' death and resurrection, how were the people in the Old Testament, like Abraham, saved if Jesus hadn't come yet? That's a great question. 
The answer is the same. They were saved by faith. Faith in God's promises to send a savior to crush a serpent. They couldn't see it perfectly, but they said, I believe what you're doing. That promise, I'm holding on to. Can't recall who I heard say it, but uh, some, uh, one pastor once said, in the Old Testament, people were saved off credit, and in the New Testament and beyond, people are saved on debit. In the Old Testament, people are saved by believing in God's yet unfulfilled plan of redemption, and what he would do in Jesus is credited to them, though they didn't understand it perfectly. And in the New Testament, we look back on what he's already done. It's debited from the account. Credit in the Old Testament, debit in the New. It's probably not a perfect illustration, but they were saved by believing in God's promises, even though they didn't understand them perfectly. But that salvation, receiving that mercy has always been by faith, is crystal clear from the beginning of Scripture. And the proof doesn't stop with Abraham. Sarah believes. Isaac believes. Rebecca believes. Jacob believes. Joseph believes. Judah believes. When God made the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3, he says that Adam and Eve will have two types of descendants. They will have seed of the serpent, children who align themselves with the serpent, and they will have seed of the woman, children who align themselves with God's promises. The defining characteristic that divides those two groups of descendants is not righteousness. It is not ethnicity. It is not hair color or skin color or language, as though one group is inherently better than the other, which is how our world lives and thinks and operates today. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. From Nairobi, Kenya to Chevrolet, Maryland, and everywhere in between, the defining characteristic that divides one group from the other is faith. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, those who receive mercy are those who believe in God's promised salvation. But mercy isn't all they receive. And that brings us to our final gospel point before we consider quickly some lessons. God's people not only receive mercy, they receive a glorious inheritance. Turn to Genesis 17. Look at me at verses four to eight. There in those verses, God promises that kings will come from Abraham. He will be exceedingly fruitful. He'll have many children, offspring, descendants. He will be God to Abraham and to all of Abraham's descendants. Now look at verse eight. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The promises that God gives to Abraham are strikingly similar to God's blessing on Adam and Eve in the beginning of Genesis. God blesses them. They are to be fruitful and multiply in the land, the garden, the land that God gave them where he would be their God and he would rule over them. Sin brings an end to that, but not an end to God's plan. God intends to have a people for himself, a people to whom he will be their God and they will be his people and they will live with him under his rule in the land that he has prepared for them. And the promises he makes here dominate the remainder of Genesis. Over and over again, God repeated his promises to his people, to Abraham and his descendants. I will be your God, I will give you many descendants, and I will bring you to the promised land of Canaan. God's people were not only to receive mercy from God, but the glorious inheritance of living with God among many descendants in the land that he had prepared for them. 
And he does that in Genesis, in part. Abraham receives a small inheritance in the land of Canaan, a down payment on a future inheritance. He dies and is buried there. And when we come to the end of Genesis, Jacob dies and is buried in Canaan. And then Joseph dies and gives instructions for his bones to be brought out of Egypt to the land of Canaan. They knew that God had prepared a glorious inheritance for them and that he would fulfill his promises to them even if they died. And the rest of the Old Testament shows how God kept those promises. So I say all the, all the parts of the plan of redemption appear in Genesis or are foreshadowed in Genesis, but Genesis isn't the end. The rest of scripture shows how God fulfilled, made good on his promise to send the seed of the woman, to crush the serpent, and to, uh, to create a place for his people where they would dwell with him forever. He brought the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. God dwelled with them in that land, in the tabernacle, and later the temple. God was their God, and they were his people living under his rule in the land he prepared for them. God kept his promises. Book is closed. That's all that God ever said. Unfortunately not. We learn that Israel, the nation, made the same decision as Adam and Eve. They sinned against God. Repeatedly over the course of a thousand years, they sinned against him. They chose to be their own gods. And like Adam and Eve, they were exiled from the promised land and from the presence of God. But God's plan of redemption, his promise to crush, promise to crush the serpent, and gather a people to live under his presence, under his rule that he created them in the land that he made for them hadn't failed. That promise would be fulfilled when God would finally send the seed of the woman to gather his exiled people, to gather those who believed in his promised salvation. And that seed is none other than Jesus Christ, who we've gathered to worship today. The New Testament recounts for us with great clarity how Jesus fulfills God's promised salvation in Genesis. We see this as we read the very first words of John's gospel, don't we? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And he was born as a man to fulfill God's promise. He is the seed of the woman who came to crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin. He lived the perfect life, unlike Adam and Eve, unlike Noah, unlike Abraham, unlike every other character in Genesis and the Bible. He alone perfectly kept God's law. And when he was tempted by the serpent, he didn't choose his own path, but obeyed God and rejected the serpent. And he did so at great cost to himself. Remember, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and be bruised himself in the midst of it. And bruised he was. He was condemned by the Jews and the Romans to die on the cross. They hatched an evil plan by which they thought they could kill Jesus and put an end to his ministry. But what they intended for evil, God intended for good. God sovereignly raised Jesus from the dead. He defamed and crushed the great serpent and as the risen king of all creation, he commands all people everywhere to turn from sin and put their faith in him for salvation from sin. And, not, and all who do receive not only mercy in this life, but the promise of eternal life with God in the perfect land that he has created for his people. 
We see Jesus foreshadowed throughout Genesis, not just in that promise. He's foreshadowed in the animal who sacrificed to provide skins for Adam and Eve. He is the ark who saves us from God's coming judgment, says Peter. He is the means by which all the nations who were divided at Babel will one day be remade into one people despite all their ethnic and language differences. He is the lamb, the the beloved son and lamb of God that was provided on Mount Moriah who died so that his people could live. He is the true Joseph, the favored son, hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, yet sovereignly raised by God out of the pit to the right hand of power to become the savior of the world. The true Joseph who forgives the very people who sought to do evil to him and who proclaims to all that though you meant it for evil, God meant my death for good to bring it about that many might be saved. Friends, we we should even stand in amazement at this. In Genesis, God's good creation becomes evil when a man tried to become God. In Jesus, it would be redeemed from evil when God became man. Jesus is the king promised to come from Judah's line, the eternal king from whom the scepter will not depart, and through whom God is redeeming the world and preparing a perfect land, the true Canaan, where he will gather his people to live in his presence under his rule forever. And just as Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham lived waiting for the fulfillment of the promise given to them, we live waiting for the fulfillment of that promise to us. That God is going to come. Jesus is going to come. And he will bring us into that happy land. There are a number of lessons that we should draw from Genesis about the Christian life that are important for us to hear. I'm gonna hit these real quick. And I wanna encourage you to discuss them over lunch today. If you have lunch with your family or other friends, or consider them in your small group in the week to come. Lesson number one that we see throughout Genesis for God's people, God's people will be persecuted. We got to hear from Ken today about how there are threats against his church. That is not new. God promised that there would be enmity between those two lines. Those of us who have believed in Jesus have become his offspring and will experience various forms of persecution in our life. It may look like being killed for your faith like Abel was killed by Cain. It may look like being mocked for your faith, as Isaac was mocked by Ishmael. It may look like our very own families turning on us for believing in Jesus, like Joseph's very own brothers turned on him. Time and time again, in Genesis, we see God's people opposed and persecuted, and Jesus promised the same to his people today. If they hate you, know that they hated me first. That doesn't mean that every single Christian or every single non-Christian will oppose you. There are lots of people in Genesis who didn't hate God's people, but who just kind of lived alongside of them. But they were opposed and persecuted in general and obvious ways. And that trend will continue until Jesus returns. So we just need to be prepared for that. And parents, even as you're talking with your kids and teens about what it looks like to follow Jesus, that is an important, important component of the message. Count the cost. See what is going to come your way. Second, God's people will be weak in relation to the world. That's the second lesson we should draw from Genesis. Even from the beginning of Genesis, we see this. It's to Cain and Cain's descendants, the seed of the serpent, that God gives the tools of culture, music, farming, and metallurgy. 
It's the people of Babel, the seed of the serpent, who used the technology of the brick to build an impressive tower. It's Esau, the seed of the serpent, who produces kings and kingdoms, all while Jacob, God's chosen servant, is still a nomad watching sheep in the desert. Still didn't even have a home. At the end of Genesis, God's people are sojourners in the most powerful kingdom on earth. Throughout scripture, God's people are weak in relation to the world. So we shouldn't be, expect to be powerful in the world's eyes. Even thinking about what Ken talked about going on in Africa today, it happens here in America. We shouldn't expect to exalt ourselves and build this great kingdom where, where people come and worship Chevrolet Baptist Church. And we're like, yeah, you should learn about Jesus, but come learn about us, right? Like God's people should expect on this side of heaven to be weak. Remember what he said to Israel? I didn't choose you because you were great or strong, just because you're the weakest. We learn in uh, 1 Corinthians. God takes the foolishness of preaching to shame the wisdom of the wise. God takes what is weak to shame the strong. Number three, God's people are to be distinct. God's people are to be distinct. God is creating a new nation of people in Jesus who trust not in the power of the world, but in God's great and precious promises. You see this so clearly when you go to the Tower of Babel and you see the table of nations who were judged at Babel, and you see that there are 70 nations who were judged at the Tower of Babel, languages, division, dispersion across the face of the earth. Then you get to the end of Genesis, and you see Jacob comes into Egypt with 70 descendants. Jacob is a new nation of people among all the nations of the world, the powerful kingdoms of the world, who are distinct from the world because they believe in God's promises. They're distinct because they call upon the name of the Lord, as God's people do from the beginning of Scripture. They are distinct because they walk by faith in God's promises, and they seek to live righteous lives. Not in order to earn our own salvation. We have great evidence throughout Scripture that God's people still struggle with sin, but we seek to live distinct lives in the world. You see that throughout Genesis. God's people are those who are looking for the promised Messiah, and looking for the city that he is building. Fourth and finally, God's people can trust God's sovereignty in our suffering. We see this throughout Genesis. Noah waiting for hundreds of days for God to remember him. Finally, God does. Sovereignly causes the waters to recede. Abraham and Sarah sovereignly, waiting for God to sovereignly provide a child in the midst of their suffering. Jacob suffering under Laban, yet prospering under his hand. Joseph suffering in the pit and then in prison. But then God sovereignly working and raising him to Pharaoh's right hand. Throughout Genesis, we see God using what mankind intends for evil to bring about ultimate good for his people. And so we need to deal in reality and honestly with what Jonathan talked about before the service. Is this really true? Yes, it is really true. We stake all of our hopes on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And we can declare to you on good authority, God's authority, that regardless of what you are experiencing, regardless of what suffering is going on in the world or in your life, God is sovereign, he is good, and by his sovereign power, he can take the evil that you are experiencing and turn it for good in your life. And he's doing that even now as he gathers his people from every tribe and tongue and nation to gather that one nation, to bring with him, to be with him where he is in that happy land of the eternal Canaan. Because God is sovereign, 
we can trust him. We can continue walking by faith, knowing that even if we die, God will keep every one of his promises to us. That is the message of Genesis. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great plan of redemption and that by your sovereign power, you are fulfilling it. You have been fulfilling it and nothing will stop your hand from accomplishing all you've promised. We pray that Jesus would come soon and very soon and as we wait, we pray that you would save many to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.